Good afternoon, guys. It is Thursday, June 18th, 2020, and welcome to episode 7 of my podcast. And anybody who's been listening in lately knows that uh, I'm trying to get some shorter um, publications up uh, on an everyday or at least every weekday basis. And uh, once I publish this episode, that'll get me through four of four weekdays this week. So I'll be pretty close to the goal of getting excuse me, a post up every day this week. Um, so just need to finish that off tomorrow and, uh, we'll go five for five. So kind of excited about that. I like the shorter format, um, giving you guys, uh, kind of daily updates on what I'm working on, media type priorities and things like that. Um, versus using every episode to go, you know, lengthier in depth on single topics. So, um, you know, as I've said before, I'm still going to do that, but the lion's share of the podcast publications will be more like this one or the other ones this week, uh, where it's a um, a shorter, more concise format, limited scope, uh, immediate term type of stuff. And so just kind of diving right in, I mean, you know, as I've been discussing this week, this real estate ebook is a real big priority of mine, uh, targeting 26 June for... Um, you know, the sort of official publication of that for sale via Gumroad and other platforms um, that I've not totally identified. I think Amazon Kindle will be another one, uh, but I'll look and see what else is out there. Um, you know, may even try to run it off of a of a website I create and just see how that does. Um, but anyway, so that's something I'm pushing really hard on right now um, and uh, worked a couple more sections this morning on the book. I had three, when I started this morning, uh, I had three blank sections remaining. Uh, one of them, I think, is going to get folded into another section. So I really probably only had two blank slates that I had to work off of. And I did both of those this morning. Um, uh, drafted up the section on rental real estate impact on personal taxes, you know, sort of how it propagates down onto your personal tax return and what that looks like and how that functions. And then the other section, which is kind of tied to that, but I wanted to zero in on it, give it a little more close attention, kind of by giving it its own section, I was highlighting how important it is, and that is depreciation. And, you know, I talked elsewhere in the book about some other concepts that um, sometimes aren't the most advertised about rental real estate and why it's such a big deal and, and such a great way to build wealth. Um, and the one that I sort of highlighted on that was the step-up basis in your estate planning where, you, you know, you're handing off the property to future generations at a stepped-up cost basis. Uh, but I would say a close second uh, is depreciation. Now, depreciation gets more attention. I mean, it's not like nobody's ever heard of depreciation or nobody talks about it. It actually is a fairly commonly cited aspect of the advantages of, of uh, investing in real estate. But I think a lot of people, it may be lost on them just how powerful it is. So I think sometimes the best way to illustrate that is just through a simple example. And you can kind of see the the big difference it makes um, when you factor it in. Now, you know, so kind of drilling down into that and giving you guys a little bit of the uh, material from the book here, uh, sort of a preview. Um, but before I run you through a mathematical example on the depreciation, the, the key concept is the way that depreciation bears on 
the dynamic between theory and reality. Okay, so in, in rental real estate, there's theory and there's reality. Okay, so what I mean by that is, uh, we'll take it one by one. In theory, a piece of property that you own as the years go by and it suffers wear and tear, uh, you know, exposure to the elements, uh, exposure to tenant damage and usage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as those things happen and those those effects accumulate, the property in theory, on paper, is considered to be worth less and less and less over time, okay? And the standard number, I mean, there's all kinds of other exceptions and other numbers and stuff. I'm going to keep it real simple um, for what would most likely pertain to you. But that is for a single-family residential piece of property with straight-line depreciation, you would divide the cost of the home, how much you paid for the home, by 27 and a half years, Okay. So that is how long you know, the property gets depreciated out. And uh, when, you, when you do that math, that number uh, is the amount of depreciation you can claim each year. Okay? So again, in theory, the house declines in value. Okay? Well, we know in reality, when you hold property for long periods of time, it almost always goes up. Okay? Now, you have little hiccups. You have you know, the 2007 to 2009 you know, housing crash didn't really actually turn around house price wise until about 2012. Um, and you had the early 90s, there was a real estate crash back then. Uh, I barely remember that being a teenager and all that. But, but yes, there are pullbacks. And there are periods of time where you regionally or nationally, you see home prices uh, suffer or decline. But I'm talking about holding a, a piece of property for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years it almost always is going up in value. And if for no other reason than just macroeconomic forces like inflation or, you know, just, um, you know, sort of national trends and that sort of thing. So without getting too scientific about that, the point is, in reality, uh, home prices increase over time, while in theory on paper, the value of the home decreases over time. So it's that disconnect right, that creates the opportunity, that creates the advantage that comes with rental real estate uh, from a depreciation perspective. So let me give you an example of how it actually kind of unfolds when we're talking about, let's say, you know, reporting this on your taxes or how this impacts your personal taxes. So let's say you bought a home for $100,000. Okay, we can keep the numbers really simple. $100,000 and you gross $10,000 of rent for the year. Okay. And you, let's say, paid $5,000 worth of expenses on that home. And by those expenses, I'm talking about, um, you know, uh, property tax, um, insurance, property management fee, maybe some maintenance in there. Excuse me. So you brought in $10,000 of rent and you paid out $5,000 of expenses. You were left with $5,000. So you put $5,000 into your bank account or into your pocket uh, when all was said and done at the conclusion of that calendar year. Now, let's take a look at it when you factor in depreciation. So a $100,000 house divided by 27 and a half years is about $3,600. So when you're actually doing the tax calculation on it, you'd enter the $10,000 of gross revenue, total rent you collected, 
you would enter the $5,000 of expenses, that would leave you with $5,000, and then you would deduct the $3,600, leaving you with $1,400 of uh, rental income on paper. So you pocketed $5,000, you got taxed against $1,400. Okay, so pretty big difference there, <laughs> right? And a pretty powerful um, case to be made for why when you put your money to work in rental real estate, it works harder for you there than just about any other place, okay? So it was really important for me to, to kind of hammer home the depreciation uh, sort of functionality uh, in the book, and it was the same verve that I used to, to hammer home the step-up basis um, concept, uh, which I think, like I said, is even more obscure, even more remote uh, when when you know, when somebody's contemplating investing in rental real estate, they just don't realize or think about how uh, advantageous these aspects of it will be. So it's really important for me to hammer that home on the depreciation uh, side of things. Now, uh, over on the other section, where we talked about taxes, uh, the personal tax stuff, um, you know, just standard stuff in there. I think one of the things that might be a little bit eye-opening in there uh, when people read that is the real estate professional status. Okay, so when you're doing your personal taxes and you're, and you're recording the effects of your rental real estate, if you're just the average investor, you know, not a, not a real estate professional, uh, you can only claim, and again, there's lots of different rules and parameters around this, but just generally speaking, you can claim up to $25,000 in losses. If you have more than $25,000 of losses, that excess carries over to the next year, and if you can't use it then, it goes to the next year, and so on and so forth. But 25000 is a pretty nice chunk. I mean, if you claim $25,000 of losses on your real estate and, and you know, end up deducting that number from your total taxable income, it's a pretty nice, pretty nice tax deduction, right? So, so it's nothing to sneeze at, but the interesting thing is if you can prove um, that you did two things, and I'm going to tell you what those two things are in a second. Uh, if you can prove these two things, you can reclassify yourself as a real estate professional and you can claim an unlimited amount of loss uh, with your properties, which means you can really bring down your taxable income significantly. Okay, it really starts to move the needle, uh, particularly if you piled up a lot of losses um, you know, in, in accumulating your properties and maintaining them and upgrading them and things like that. So the two things that you have to show is, number one, um, that you spend um, more than half your time on real estate trades or businesses. Um, and, you know, there's certain definitions. And like I said, you know, this is definitely something you got to peel back uh, and do the research on and talk to your tax advisor about. Um, but it's definitely something for you to go look at. That's kind of what I want to do here is kind of germinate these ideas for you guys and you can and you can kind of chase them down. But um, so you have to show that that you're more than halfway engaged, okay? And then you have to show that you logged at least 750 hours towards material participation in the real estate properties. And material participation is pretty, it's a pretty significant bar to get over. It doesn't just mean your property manager called you once a year and asked you if you would want to lease the house to a particular person or something like that. It's not just making high-level management decisions. You have to be sleeves rolled up and really involved with the properties. And, you know, that's 
certainly possible. It's certainly feasible in, in certain instances when people are heavily involved in their rental activities. So it's not something that's way out of touch, but you have to meet that that bar. But the 750-hour requirement, absolutely something you guys would need to uh, be very careful with because the the real estate professional status, and this is my opinion, I, I've never seen it happen. I don't know anybody who claims it, and I've never claimed it, so I don't know this firsthand. But I assume that because it changes the game on how you can claim your real estate losses and has such a huge effect on your taxes, it would be a red flag for the IRS. So if you're going to claim your real estate professional, just know that you are probably putting yourself on the IRS's radar. You should act like you're putting yourself on the IRS's radar. And therefore, you need to document stringently why you consider yourself a real estate professional. So to the 750 hours of all the research I've done, the recommendation there is that you keep uh, daily time logs. You know, I worked two hours on, you know, reviewing leases. I worked one hour on balancing the books. You know, the next day I spent one hour talking to real estate agents. You know, whatever the case might be, you get the point. But you want to keep detailed time logs showing how you got to that 750 hours. Okay, now if you consider that one year, one man year of work is about 2,000 hours, it's basically saying that you worked a third of the year on, you know, on, on your real estate activity. So if a standard work week is 40 hours, you're saying you work 12 hours uh, that week, um, you know, 12 to th- more like 13. You work 13 hours that week on your real estate activities and portfolio. So what's 13 divided by five? It's about two plus hours a day. Okay, that's kind of what you're saying is you worked more than two hours a day on the real estate activity. Um, so, you know, weekday, whatever. So anyway, so that's kind of one thing in that section that I think stands out that might be interesting uh, to people who are investing in real estate and are accumulating a lot of properties and starting to spend more and more time with them. They may not even know that they may be crossing that threshold where they could be considered a real estate professional. Uh, obviously, the more time you spend on it, you know, is one huge factor because you have to meet those requirements I talked about. But also, as you accumulate more and more real estate and you're pulling in more income from it, you may find that it's your primary function. You know, that you don't, you know, maybe you started out with a job and you invested on the side, but as you accumulate more and more properties and you have more and more cash flow coming in, you know, now all of a sudden it's, either all you do or mostly what you do because you don't need the job anymore. You don't need a second income anymore. So in that case, it's very easy to show the IRS, yeah, it's my primary function because it's all I do or it's, you know, it's it's consuming most of my time, you know. Um, and then, of course, the income substantiates the fact that you you don't need a secondary function. You don't have another, you know, pursuit that's taking you away from the real estate. So, uh, it's definitely something to be aware of and think about and kind of, you know, take a look at, um, you know, as you as you kind of go along. You know, beginner investors, there's virtually no chance you could be classified uh, as a real estate professional. But, you know, that's not to say you shouldn't check and it's not to say you shouldn't look closely at what the uh, requirements are. So anyway, that's really where I stand with the book. Um <laughs> You know, in order to stay on track and have a final draft in place by the weekend, got a lot of sections that need to be kind of updated or 
or tweaked. I think I counted somewhere between six and eight sections that require some degree of work to get those sections to a final draft. And then that would afford me, once that's done, um, you know, let's say I can't, let's say I do get that done between now and the weekend, then starting next week, Monday the 22nd, I would be in a situation where I was uh, finalizing the document for publication on the 26th. That's kind of the rough schedule, but definitely got to get over the hump here in the next um, next few days. Um, so that's kind of it on the ebook. Um, you know, the other item that I that I mentioned uh, once before this week, I think, um, for my e-commerce efforts uh, with regard to the Shopify store was Pinterest. And again, I've got my virtual assistant really kind of dug in on using and, and uh, optimizing Pinterest. Uh, so I don't have the firsthand exposure to it that I would like. I eventually need to catch up to that. Uh, but I've been kind of busy uh, with focusing more on the Shopify store itself, Facebook page, Instagram page, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but definitely some promising things going on with Pinterest. I mean, just in my dialogue with the VA, um, you know, really interesting levels of engagement, organic reach, you know, the ability to, you know, take, let's say, product images, post them on a board, go to somebody else's board, save some of their pins, you know, sort of scratch their back, drop a message or a note and say, hey, can you pin or can you take a look at my board uh, and just kind of trade off some of that organic um, engagement. Um, and that's before even getting into paid ads or, you know, doing other types of things you can do with Pinterest to promote uh, your e-commerce uh, products, your e-commerce storefront, if you will. So I'm really excited about Pinterest. Um you know, I, I think it's I think it's an underdog of sorts to let's say Instagram, but I think there's more traction to be had there. Uh just from my initial kind of look at it and my initial impression of it, um, is that if used properly, it can go much further than Instagram, which of course is saturated with, you know. Uh, people posting visuals and stories of their products and so forth. I mean, it's it's definitely a place that uh, that I need to have a presence, and I plan on building out that presence. But I think it's going to be more likely that if any traction is to be had on Instagram, it's going to be through paid traffic, um, you know, paying for ads and driving people uh, uh, to the uh, products that way. So um, that kind of wraps it up for the two things I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, one little nugget I'll, I'll throw out there that was kind of an interesting surprise this morning um, is this whole update from Twitter uh, about um, uh, voice tweets and how selected users, I happen to be one of the lucky ones, I guess, uh, selected users could tweet audio tweets. Um, I know that Twitter's going to eventually roll out, um, uh, eventually going to roll out a stories type function called fleets where you can record, you know, video and, and it goes away after 24 hours. That's going to be really interesting to see how that works. Uh, but that's been a very limited rollout. It hasn't come to the U S yet. So the audio tweet function, I mean, I had no idea that was happening. That just kind of came out of nowhere. Saw this new icon in my draft tweet this morning and I was like, Oh, what's this? So, you know, Google did. And next thing I know, you know, was kind of a limited rollout by Twitter to see how it works 
and to see what kind of value they can add to users uh, by allowing you to tweet uh, by voice. And the interesting thing is when you go past 140 seconds, you automatically create a second and a third and a fourth tweet, you know, depending on how much time you use, and it builds out a thread. So it's a nice way if you have a lot to say on a subject, and I think that's probably the most useful thing about it. You can't reply to tweets by voice. You have to reply with text. But if you're composing, let's say, your own tweet, and it's fairly lengthy, maybe there's some nuance in there, and you want to be careful about not just what you're saying, but the way that you're saying it. Uh, and again, you've got a lot to say on it. Um, it's a perfect way to create a thread of tweets that you know kind of conveys your message. So that was really interesting. Figured I'd throw that out there today as well. Um, but anyway, appreciate you guys listening to this. Uh, I'm going to go for the uh, five for five tomorrow, get uh, five straight episodes up uh, this week uh, and continue that experiment. Um, but uh, we'll be pushing hard on that ebook tomorrow, try to get that into final draft form as we head into the weekend. Um, that's really the goal at this point is to is to get that thing uh, in a fully drafted kind of format. So anyway, uh, yeah, thanks again for listening, guys. Uh, follow me on Twitter at CJ Anastasio. You can jump over to the Facebook business page uh, at Christopher Anastasio LLC. And, uh, you know, just follow my updates and, and posts there as well. So thanks again, guys. Uh, have a great one.